Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. In our second podcast on the topic of augmented and virtual reality, we will discuss the process behind making content for consumer-facing equipment. In so doing, we'll also learn how students interested in emerging communication technologies use such production as a vehicle for problem-solving, creativity, and real-world application. Through this discussion, you will also get a glimpse into the process of creating such content, something that may be more within your reach than you might even expect. My guests today are John Bowditch, who is a professor in the School of Emerging Communication Technology, and two students who are working with him, Alyssa Stahl and Mitchell Cook. John, welcome. Thank you. And Alyssa and Mitchell, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. So um, I want to start by... um, having listeners sort of understand what the Immersive Media Initiative is at Ohio University and, and what it is that uh, you've tried to accomplish in working with a few other faculty members to build that program, John. Sure. So the GRID Lab is now entering its 15th year, and uh, GRID stands for Game Research and Immersive Design Lab, game kind of being the key word there. Everything we do has some element of gaming tied to it. Uh, It may not actually end up being a game, it might be a simulation, it might be used for training, it might be a virtual or augmented reality experience, which is really where we've pivoted over the last few years. So in 2015, 2016, uh, the Office of Research here at Ohio University held an internal competition called the Innovation Strategy Funds. Uh, There were over 60 applications within the university and they funded four projects. One of those projects was the Immersive Media Initiative out of the Scripps College. And basically, the, the Immersive Media Initiative, or IMI, was designed to really build a solid foundation in XR technologies for the university that would make us more attractive to external partnerships, grants, contracts. Uh, it would give students an advantage when they were entering the job market. And so we use this term XR, which is actually somewhat lazy. Uh, it's kind of a catch-all term. So X. We don't even really agree on what the X stands for. It could be exponential realities or uh, fill-in-the-blank X realities. But primarily, it focuses on virtual reality, which is a complete digital experience, and augmented reality, which is a digital experience overlaid on top of the real world. Those, Those technologies, AR and VR, are so similar right now that we just kind of use a term called XR to, to include them both. And, and so just just to accentuate a point, uh, when you said that everything has an element of gaming to it, the work that you all are doing in XR production, whether it's augmented, virtual, or whatever the next one is, all of that has an underlying principle that, that really started with the production of games. Is, is that a fair way Correct. of describing yeah. that? Correct, yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're building interactivity into almost everything we do. Right, and so interactivity uh, requires a certain type of software, in this case a game engine, to make it usable um, in virtual or augmented reality. So an example of a project that we're, we're doing that you may not necessarily assume the Grid Lab would take on is we had a partnership with the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital where we sent a team of students out there for uh, about five or six days, and we used 360-degree video cameras to capture every trauma that came into their emergency room. Uh, these could be car accidents, they could be violent crimes. Um, the most common one that we had, which is like so San Francisco, is we had a lot of bicycle accidents <laughs> come in there. But basically we recorded all of these traumas coming in in full 360. 
We processed all of that footage back in Athens. We added graphical um, interactive materials to it. We created the ability to track eyes within that space. And now that hospital is using it to train its residents on how to operate in the trauma bay. Mm -hmm. So um, just before I, I turn to the students to get some of their perspective of being a part of this, um, two, two additional points from you. Um, how many students approximately are working with the Grid Lab and the Immersive Media Initiative right now? So currently we have uh, about 40 students employed at the Grid Lab. That's a combination of undergraduate and graduate students. Um, just as early as last spring, we had close to 70 students. So there's a lot of different projects going on. Those are the paid employees that we have, mm -hmm. either working as part of a graduate contract or an hourly pay. Um, as far as students that utilize the space, we have about 150 students every semester taking classes in XR. Yeah, so I was actually going to pivot there. Uh, so you, in addition to doing work on contracts with external partners to create this content, you also, um, working with other faculty, were intentional in creating a curriculum about uh, XR production. And one of the interesting things that you did is that you were also intentional when you created that curriculum and having it be open to students from anywhere in the university without very many barriers to get in. What, why did you do that? Yeah, so one, one of the things we, we learned from talking to students is sometimes they feel too siloed. Um, and if they wanted to explore a particular area, there might be three or four classes they'd have to take in order to get to the classes they want to actually learn. Um, actually participate in. Um, and so we, we decided to kind of flip that on its head. So we made all of these classes um, available to any student, regardless of discipline, at both the undergraduate and graduate level. And the unique thing is we get a lot of media students mixing with business students and education students and fine arts students. And it, it, it's the most creative experience that th these students can have because they're getting all these different perspectives coming at the same medium. And in fact, you're also working with faculty from the hard sciences, That's right. engineering. I mean, it's really interesting to see the mix of people. Yeah, so over the, over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, we've actually had faculty partnerships um, with a representative from every college at Ohio University, um, from uh, medicine and health and science professionals, which we do a lot of projects with, all the way to education, fine arts, mm -hmm. um, business. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been really exciting. Um, we have a pretty simple formula. We just find interesting people that have interesting ideas, and we partner with them. Um, Maybe that's why you've never approached me. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you intimidate me, so that's what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm so intimidating. Alyssa, <laughs> let's get away from this discussion. Alyssa, so uh, tell us um, what you know, you're in school, you are, what your major is, and then I want to ask some follow-up questions about some of the things you've worked on. Okay. Um, well, I am a senior. My major is just overarching uh, media arts and studies because I'm in the honors tutorial college. With that in mind, then, how long have you been working with the Grid Lab? And you know, give me an example of a project that you've worked on. Okay. Um, I started working in the Grid Lab. It was the summer after my freshman year um, because I had come in and uh, just kind of gotten shown around. Um, by one of my professors and immediately decided that I wanted to work there and I wanted to go into VR. And um, probably the my favorite project that I worked on was last uh, semester, not the summer, but the most recent spring semester. Um, I did a walkable VR experience. And basically it was myself and two other people. And John just said, make a project. <laughs> and we decided we wanted to do walkable VR. And we, it was just kind of like a a 
it was a game essentially. It was a blanket fort type maze thing where you went through this little blanket fort and you had little kind of mini games almost at each level. Um, and so each one of us designed a different kind of level. Um, and then you found the crown essentially. That was kind of the goal of the game. Um, so but before I, um, I want to come back to that. Let mm-hmm. me get one more example from Mitchell on the yeah. table. Mitchell, wanted to tell us about your background and maybe a project that you've worked on. Yeah, so I'm a senior here. I'm in games animation, and I'm minoring in business. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been at the Grid Lab for, I think, one of my first year now, so it's been a journey. Um, I also worked on a, a redirected walking experience. Uh, my team and I made a game that the player uh, explores an ancient temple and looks for a uh, hidden idol. Mm-hmm. And to find it to solve puzzles and uh, survive traps. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was really well received so far, uh, and uh, we're hoping to take it further. So, since both of you worked on uh, projects that have some similar aspects to it, both are walkable VR. Tell me, I mean, an average listener maybe has an idea about what virtual reality is, and John kind of defined it a little bit, but can the two of you go into a little bit more detail about what that might be like if, if you know, one of the listeners had on a headset and what walkable VR actually means for them? Okay, I'll try to, I'll try to start off and feel free to jump in. Um, basically, with walkable VR, you... What we've been doing is having a backpack computer attached to your headset, um, which tetherless headsets now exist, but at the time we were using, um, you had to use a computer still. And basically you have to design the game around a certain space. So ours was within a 10 by foot by 10 foot square. I think Mitch's was 15 by 15. Correct. Um, and you basically just... Um, have to direct the player so that they stay within that 10 by 10 square without even realizing that they're just basically walking in a circle or staying in the same area. But within the headset in the environment, you know, you might walk through a door and then since you're looking one way, you won't notice that behind you, the things behind you change. Um, so then it's constantly kind of moving you through this changing world and you think you're traversing a really large area, but in reality you're staying within this little square. And, and so I've experienced this. And so, you know, what you're, what you're sort of saying is that you, the designer, are creating visual cues that causes the person that has the headset on to stay within that, that geographic mm-hmm. boundary. So it's not like they're tethered or it's not right. like there are fences or anything like that. It's really you guiding them through visual perception. Exactly. Um, now, Mitch, um, when you think about um, the projects that both you and Alyssa have worked on, obviously you're learning game design, but have you given thought to how this walkable VR technology might have applications that certainly would be really cool for video games, but what are some other ways that you think that has potential to be used? So redirected walking has a lot of applications within training simulations. So whether that be for the police, the government, or even a restaurant, uh, it it can be applicable there. I know we have another uh, graduate student who has talked to me and uh, my partner about creating a medical simulation using this. Uh, And right now we're just feeling out to see what we can do with it. Um, Our primary focus is games, uh, but I'm also interested in seeing what else I can do with it. Um, but yeah, it's primarily for training simulations as well. Mm-hmm. Now, when you both started, we're out, I'll go back to Alyssa just so we're clear on who's answering. So when you started working on the project, Alyssa, um, I, 
what were was this a class assignment? Um, and regardless of how you answered that question, what were the directions that you were given? You know, to sort of launch this project. I mean, you know, I'm not looking for really finite, you know, bullet mm-hmm. points. But what were you told that you were supposed to accomplish? Um, well. This particular don't, don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> this particular project wasn't for class; it was just wor- for work at the Good Lab. Um, although I did do another very similar project at the same time for a class, um, but it pretty much, you know, John put myself and two other people on a team, and pretty much just told us to create a award-winning VR project. <laughs> and. While we didn't win an award with that one, I did with the other one. So, yeah. <laughs> but it, there wasn't too many parameters to it, although other times yeah. we are given those. But well, yeah. it, it had to be new. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. Failure was acceptable, and uh, so Alyssa paired up with Riley Zink and Jesse Robinson, both super talented students. Both of mm-hmm. both of them inter- uh, interned at NASA this past summer, working mm-hmm. working in VR. Um, yeah, and so. We gave them the nickname of the strike team, <laughs> right? And they were really just designed to, okay, you got some money, you've got some time, figure out a unique project that we might be able to build on going forward. Mm-hmm. And is that similar for you, Mitchell? Sort of similarly ambitious, but not overly specific directions? Uh, kind of, only our project was actually for our uh, capstone class. Like, mm. So uh, we actually had a little bit more direction, but uh, still kind of a, you know, this is on you guys kind of approach and which really helped us do mm-hmm. our own thing with it. The, the reason I was asking questions about that is that my impression, and certainly that's reinforced by hearing the three of you talk about it, is that many of these projects sort of start in what I would call an ill-defined problem state. Like, you know that you have a task that you have to accomplish, but unlike many of the assignments that you might encounter as a college student where it's a 15-page assignment direction sheet, right? These are ill-defined in the sense that you don't know what many of the actual parameters are until you start working on it. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I would say so. When you go through the process then of creating one of these XR um, pieces of content, what are some things that you've learned um, along the way that maybe isn't the the super technical stuff that I know you did learn on how to do it, but about the process of creating that? Because I think one of the premises of the Immersive Media Initiative is that we learn to be quick in production and, and do that in, in this space so that we can give you know, sort of rapid response to needs. But what did you learn about the production process in doing this? I think a big thing that I didn't necessarily, I already kind of knew this, but it just reinforced, was to never give up on a problem because no matter what, especially with this very new technology, there will be problems and mm-hmm. things won't work even though you think they should be. So it's a lot of just problem solving and trial and error and just being able to continue to work on a problem no matter how frustrating it may get, mm-hmm. um, I think is really valuable just to have that reinforced, not only you know to try and try again, but also have it reinforced that you will solve it eventually. Mm-hmm. Mitch? I just found that writing down everything is a huge benefit for this sort of <laughs> thing. It's kind of what my whole whole job is to be as a producer is to write down everything and take notes so we can reflect on it later. I also found that putting one of my team members in timeout when they start <laughs> freaking out is the best move as well. Uh, I think we know who I'm talking about. Will, <laughs> if you're listening to this, it's you. Yeah. Um, 
But besides that, it's really uh, been a fun process. Uh, I've learned a lot, even just on our, my own and working with John. I learned a lot from Alyssa. I definitely didn't copy any of her ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't copy any of yours. <laughs> hey, it works out. And, and this is a very collaborative um you know, I mean, this isn't something that you do by yourself in a residence hall room. This is something that involves a lot of people, right? I mean, and a lot of ideas. For sure. <clears throat> For I sure. Can. Uh, I think, luckily, Alyssa and I have experienced primarily smaller teams, mm-hmm. three to four people max. But if once you get in the workforce, I think these teams could range in size to be monstrous. I mean, the void has a lot of employees. Mm-hmm. So, so, so um, going in that theme, uh, what do the two of you want to do next with this? I mean, you've got, you've got high impact learning experiences and, you know, both of you are starting to think about the next step in your evolution as young professionals. What do you want that to be? Are you asking kind of career wise what we're aiming for? Uh, I think me personally, I want to go into VR development of some area, preferably in kind of like a management or even producer type position. I just like being able to oversee projects so something mm-hmm. of that nature mm-hmm. um well, my short-term or long-term goals <laughs> both <laughs> short-term i just like to end up in like a nice studio uh somewhere making games i've always wanted to make mm-hmm. games long-term i'd love to own my own studio mm-hmm. so if i could put my own uh just my own spin on games you know inspire the next generation would be perfect for me that's mm-hmm. all i want so john back to you um so Alyssa and Mitch talked about, you know, this idea of having to overcome challenges. And as you all have done big projects, like you mentioned the Zuckerberg project in Mm -hmm. San Francisco, you all have had to learn how to innovate. And what's interesting is that, you know, one of the things that you all are really good at is figuring out how to get maximum use out of off the shelf products. But even in doing that, you've had to figure out how to innovate in in doing that. Can you talk about some examples of that? Sure. So, you know, one, one of the major ingredients in innovation is frustration, right? If you are frustrated, if you are unsure of what how to, how to solve a problem and you can't find an analog out there of someone else solving this problem, it means you're frustrated because you're probably innovating. You're probably doing something innovative. And that that's really powerful. And once you can kind of get students to believe that, um, it, it helps it helps kind of managing manage the uh, stress that comes along with that. Um, but we we do a lot of projects where we have some approximation of how we might approach the idea, but in many cases, we've never actually solved that problem before. Mm-hmm. Um, some projects are a lot more ambitious than others. Um, it's a little bit of a risk to do that, but I, I've, I've found that the faculty that work within the Grid Lab and the students that are attracted to the Grid Lab actually really enjoy that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never really a doubt in my mind that we will figure out a solution. It's just the starting point to the end point, that journey is never really defined. And it's often, it, it often changes course over the life of a project. Is there, I mean, I'm sure that you have a lot of examples. Is there one that is particularly poignant in your mind? Yeah, so um, let's take the backpack PC example. So it, it, you're basically like a Ghostbuster, right? You're wearing a backpack, you've got a full block PC on your back and um, you're wearing a virtual reality headset so your view is what we call occluded. You don't see anything outside of that headset, right? So the immediate thing that comes to mind is, okay, we're gonna put someone in our experience. It's a digital experience. They aren't gonna see their space around them. 
And we're going to give them confidence to just walk around and trust us that they're not going to trip over something or hit a wall. It took a, a lot of testing to get to that point. But we, along the way, we discovered how powerful this medium is. So um, I'm going to discuss Mitch's project. So his project is called Adventure VR. Uh, it's obviously got some Indiana Jones inspiration <laughs> behind it. But there is a particular part in that experience when I, where I would say more than a third of the users just stop and they don't go any further. So basically you're navigating through this um, temple. It's on the side of a mountain. And at one point you come out the side of the mountain and you're maybe two or 300 <laughs> yards above the ground and you can see all of this below you. And you have to walk over these planks sticking out of the side and they're crumbling and tilted <laughs> and they fall out. Um, everyone that we talk to knows that it's fake. Um, they know they're not going to fall, but still a third of the people will pop the headset off at that point and say, nope, I don't, <laughs> it's true. I don't want to go any further. Um, we've had similar episodes where we put them on the side of a steep, um, tall building and they have to walk around the exterior of that, and they're on their hands and knees, crawling right. around. Um, those are things we never really imagined. Um, and because of that, I mean, that's a really powerful thing to see in a project that you create, and I think that inspires a lot of future projects going forward. Mm -hmm. In no accident since April of 2018, but that was, <laughs> um, that was it, no one was hurt. It's just they got out of our containment area. The oh, legal wow. team was very good. That's right. <laughs> I will say, uh, from Adventure VR, because of that whole height situation that we have, I've walked a lot of people across that. I had one person crawl across it. Uh, but I also had a few people come up and ask if they could do it again to face their fears. Uh, or even if we could do a horror game, because they want to face these fears because it's so immersive and it really bends their mind to it. Mm -hmm. you know. And it's uh, really exciting to see these people experience this, A, for the first time or for the second time. They're all very, very excited to, uh, or, or not excited to mm -hmm. see the height section. Well, and another example of like something that we were surprised by. Um, so we had a couple of our MFA and communication media arts students um, do a project for a class with Professor Eric Williams. Um, it was a 360 degree video um, project. So 360 degree video, the simplest way of looking at it is when you're sitting on your couch watching your television, your field of view is maybe about 30 degrees we fill in that other 330 degrees and we do it horizontally and vertically. So you're standing inside of the sphere. Um, there's a lot of technical challenges with that, but we're focusing on the content creation side. And so these MFA students created an experience to deliver bad news to a family. So they hired professional actors, they recorded this, um, they recorded basically um, from your standpoint, from your eyes, you are delivering news to a family. Uh, basically, you're taking on the role of a physician, and that physician has to tell them that their child was lost due to an accident. Okay, Very, very serious stuff. And we use a technique called guided simulation. I think it's better described as like karaoke VR. So the actors will deliver their part, and then some text will pop up, and you're supposed to actually say it out loud. You're actually supposed to perform it. Um, we thought this would be like a really good tool to kind of get people going through those steps, especially like medical students. Mm -hmm. But we were finding seasoned professionals coming out of that experience in tears. Wow. Right? It's, uh, pediatricians have tried it and they come out and they're like, 
yeah, maybe it's a little on the Hollywood side, but I've had to do that before, and that is like the worst part of my job. And there was nothing in my schooling that prepared me for that, right? And so this is, this is like a really surprising thing to learn that this medium can be so powerful in delivering um, training that you would not get in any other form. You know, as I've um, learned what you all are doing and then and then talked about it with you and then other people that we're trying to partner with, it, it just strikes me that, you know, as educators, we learn about the three domains of learning, affective, cognitive, and behavioral. And um, as educators, we're pretty good at the cognitive side, right? That's right. Yep. Um, the affective side, we know is important and we do a lot of things to try to tap it. And, you know, with some degree of success, but what, what has struck me about these immersive experiences is exactly what you're describing is that it is a tool for affective learning that is, uh, is incomparable to anything else that I've ever seen, you know, as an educator. Yeah. I mean, maybe outside of actually doing real world, you know, experiences, you know, like, like internships or co-op experiences or something like that. But, you know, absent doing it in the real world, this as a classroom tool is so powerful. It really is. Yeah. And like, and it, it's somewhat accidental, right? We had no idea it would be this powerful. And actually it's really made us rethink how we deliver content like this. Mm -hmm. You know, we, for, for this particular experience, we now do kind of like a, a, a briefing before they go into the experience. And then we have a post briefing where we're talking them down a little bit and kind mm -hmm. of reinforcing some of the areas they learn and kind of disconnecting it as a virtual experience. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, we've had to adapt to that as well. Um, Alyssa and Mitch, both of you are um, a little bit younger than John and I, and so you, your, your memory of high school is a bit more framed than ours is. Um, is it realistic to think that, um, that this type of technology could become commonplace uh, in K-12 settings for students to experience uh, learning situations. So you're asking more as like using it as an educational yeah. tool? Yeah, and, and I want to get to the production side of it. I, that's mm -hmm. not really what my question is about, but do you see direct applications as a learning tool for teachers and various subjects throughout um, K-12 systems? Hmm. I could probably see it, but it maybe like in a few like years, maybe five to ten, as opposed to like in the closer, just because, you know, I think VR needs to become more commonplace amongst the average person, because I think people will get a little um, hesitant about it. Some people are very scared of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also there is, I think, research being done also just on the impact VR has on younger children. Mm -hmm. um, I think I forget which company it is, but they don't allow kids under a certain age to use VR because. Mm -hmm. I think it does something with um, makes it what is it? It can affect their yeah their rocky yeah. development yeah. yeah and struggle with like realizing what is real and what is not and things of that mm -hmm. nature. So that's really interesting. So there mm -hmm. are, there's definite ethical dimensions to it. Yeah. Um, so so you know what I hear you saying is that the potential requires still there to be research and development and understanding about the effects of this technology. You know, and that's yeah. important to know because there there are easily accessible consumer um, options out there that is conceivably in classrooms already. So it's sort of important to know this dialogue that we do really need to think more about this before mm -hmm. we just sort of go wild with it. Is that yeah. a fair, John, I mean, you. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges still with VR. I mean, they're, the headsets are uncomfortable. Um, I'm a big germaphobe, so I always <laughs> like think about who had the helmet against their face before I did. Um, 
I kind of compare it to the, the rise of smartphones, right? I feel like right now we're in the Palm Pilot BlackBerry stage of smartphones where people saw the value in it. Uh, they, they could see that it was starting to incline on an S-curve, but we were still waiting for our iPhone moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that's essentially where this industry is, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitch, um, we, we talked before about the fact that you all you know worked in various size teams on this stuff. Um, is there a reason why students that are majoring in something other than media, I mean, you're a media person, but if somebody's majoring in something other than media, is there a reason why it would be good for them to understand this technology better maybe not as in-depth as you do, but to understand the process of creation and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think uh, understanding the development of virtual reality is important to really anyone. I mean, it it gives you an advantage in problem solving. Uh, You experience things that you won't really experience in any other field. And as the field is growing, I mean, it offers more opportunities. Medical students might have the chance to utilize them or give feedback and help uh, define how they're used business students might have the chance to work within the marketplace itself for mm-hmm. VR. You know, it's it's not just for uh, creators or the creative types. It's for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. Alyssa and John, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it could be important just, you know, understanding the background of how it's made, um, especially if you potentially are going to be using it in the future. And by that, I'm kind of thinking about, um, I forgot to mention earlier, I'm a psychology minor Hmm. and I see a lot of potential with like therapy and things of that nature. Um, With VR, they're already kind of starting to use it. I've been doing a lot of research for my thesis coming up in that psychology realm. And the studies that I've all seen that use VR in psychology, the production value is very, very low. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it would be really beneficial, you know, people who are looking to use psychology in research and things of that nature, even if they are hiring someone to do it, just have a general idea to know, to have realistic ideas of it being made and it being good Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that it is, you know, works to the best of its ability. I mean, I guess going back to the iPhone analogy, if you would have asked that same question about smartphones when we were at the BlackBerry uh, PDA stage, most people would have said, no, there's no reason for me to know that. But in that's retrospect, right. they know that that's not true. Yeah, I mean, 12 years ago, if you said that there are going to be 3 billion smartphones on the planet, people would think that you're, like, reading too much sci-fi, right? <laughs> um, I mean, it's important to note that the, the iPhone is only 12 years old, and it's incredibly disruptive technology. I, I don't think anyone could imagine their life without uh, their smartphone. And I say iPhone kind of generically. Um, that could also be the Android phones. I think it's an inferior device, but uh, <laughs> I believe you said superior wrong. Yeah, um, you know, but you know, one, one industry that I think is we're really just starting to tap into with this power is journalism, mm-hmm. right? The the ability to tell stories objectively requires a greater field of view, mm-hmm. right? When you're when you're doing a news broadcast now, you're you're filming a news broadcast, you're really so, selecting the shots that the audience is going to see. And that may not be the whole picture, right? So we were really inspired by um, this this report that Eric Williams, a professor in the McClure School, shared with us. Uh, he went to the Ukraine several years ago um, to work with a sister institution at the University of Kiev. And he happened to be there during the, rev- the start of the revolution. We think that he helped trigger it, yeah, but he just happened to yeah. be there during the start of a revolution. <laughs> right, and it, and it, we were all very panicked about that because on the nightly news, we would see people throwing stones and burning tires, and you would see this one very specific view. And he would say, 
Yeah, that that did happen. But if he turned 180 degrees, it was life as usual in Kiev. And that was a part of that story that was never really told. Hmm. Right. So you can give the audience an opportunity to make up their own mind by having more information to to to, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. Um, last question, because and this could be a rabbit hole, but <laughs> to to the point that you're making, um, you're part of a new school in the college uh, called the McClure School of Emerging Communication Technology. So this idea of what's next is really important and at the forefront of what you and the other faculty are doing. How far do you think we are from live 360? Uh, uh, I mean, years. To, to the point of, you know, where it's you're making good quality. News, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, so we do some live streaming now. It's not of the best quality, but I would say um, we're close, right? We still need that iPhone moment where people have the devices to consume 360 video, with, mm -hmm. right? So once that happens, um, I, I think it'll be almost immediate after that point. Yeah, great. Uh, so my guests today were John Bowditch, uh, Mitch Cook, and Alyssa Stahl, all of which work in the Immersive Media Initiative and the Grid Lab at Ohio University. Thank you all three for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. And thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a good day.